I'm Rob Hirschfeld, CEO and co-founder of RackN and your host for the Cloud 2030 podcast. This is a special episode. Hazel Weekly walks us through the hackyderm leaving the basement migration and really talks much more generally about Mastodon, Fediverse, and scaling distributed systems. The points that we cover in this short podcast are a masterclass in what it takes to scale infrastructure and systems, especially live and under duress. Uh, Hazel's experience in this is amazing, and every minute of this conversation is worth listening to twice. I know you'll enjoy the conversation. Good thing we have joined the uh, modern ages, and we actually have edit buttons on Mastodon now. That is awesome. It's kind of like the whole Android versus iOS thing where Mastodon has had these features for like eight years. <laughs> and you're just waiting for it to happen. Yeah, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely insane. That uh, Well, I, I don't I don't know why Twitter held that one off for so long. It seems weird. You don't know why Twitter what? Why did Twitter why did Twitter hold it off? So there's actually some interesting reasons for that, and it okay. somewhat makes sense. So it turns out that like Twitter has this weird thing with their architecture where every single post has a unique ID. A global okay. central unique ID. Which means as you have millions of people using Twitter constantly and posting constantly, you need to have this unique thing across thousands of computers. Like they have 500,000 servers and you have a single global counter just firing off as fast as possible. Sure. And so they built so many different things in order to make a number go up faster. <laughs> thing. They have like a whole post they've written, they've written white papers on make number go up faster. And okay. how to scale number go fast. And so it's quite remarkable. But it means that because everything is also event-based and kind of streaming-based, if you have a post ID and the content and they're tied together, how do you change the content after if every post ID goes up? Right. That makes sense. Yeah, it's a ca- it's a it's a cash it's a caching problem from that perspective, mm-hmm. and hi- and and then highly optimized is the other side of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It would have basically broken every single client and every single API using Twitter, all the way back through like <laughs> since, since the beginning, just since the beginning. So there's no way they could do it because there's millions of dollars of infrastructure riding on that. Right. No, it's that that's that is the very definition of an architecturally locked problem, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's like I always say, uh, tech problems are really just people problems where we pretend the problems aren't the people. That's fair enough. So, I mean, Mastodon's going to have the same issue. Well, I guess not. If you design the edit button from the start, then you don't. It's not as much of a challenge. Yeah, so Mastodon is basically, you can think of it as a wrapper around a protocol that's open source called ActivityPub. And the cool thing about ActivityPub is it's actually a web standard 
um, W, um, W3C. Yeah. And, um, so it's in the same category of web standardization as say HTML and that's not going away. Okay. And so if you're like, I want to have this sort of federated concept of content, you can use that. <laughs> Just like if you want to say, I want to have markup on a page, you can use HTML and everything oh, can use funny. it. No, it makes so, perfect sense. So at that yeah. point, you're dealing with a web a web content distribution standard, which mm -hmm. is actually much better understood at this point than um, hey, here's people coming. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm promoting. Saying... I, I promote everybody to panelists, by the way, mm -hmm. um, and then I I control on the back end. So, uh, but I would ask if you are um, somebody who is not identified with a name. Um, please go ahead and uh, put your name in. So we're not we're not anonymous as I promote you to panelists. If you want to just stay as a listener, that's fine too. Just just you can leave it as a anonymous account. I'm, I'm talking. There's one person. There's only an M on the channel that I'm talking that I'm I'm mm -hmm. talking to. And let me put up chat so I can see if people need. One thing I actually particularly like about the W3C Activity Pub standard is you can look at the RFC and it's actually super understandable. It is one of my favorite documents of like, this is what an RFC looks like. If you've never seen one before, here's how to write a good one. It's unironically really good. Is I... the protocol useful? Different story. Like the protocol has, <laughs> has issues in it. Like the protocol you can describe something well. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that's but very true right so a beautifully written description of something does not necessarily make it uh useful mm -hmm. yeah probably the biggest issue that the protocol has is that it causes an exponential amount of traffic in order to communicate with higher veneration right so E, that could be a really significant, I guess that's part of what we're going to be talking about from a scaling perspective. How does how does it create an exponential growth problem? It is a very classic like sort of nested for loop style of okay. exponentiation where you have like, let's say I'm a user on Mastodon and I make a post. That post gets sent out to everyone on my Mastodon instance and it gets sent yeah. to everyone that venerates with my Mastodon instance. And if someone on the Mastodon instance that venerates with it interacts with it, that interaction goes to anyone who venerates with them. And so it keeps uh, okay. bubbling out. But and does then, that, does that translate into a performance problem from the originator it actually sounds like what we, what's happened with the federation is that it's re, you're re, you're reducing traffic on the the front the original the original server you're reducing cpu load in one way and carrying it in another okay. so like if someone like if someone boosts the post or likes it or comments on it or something i have to see it and so mm. that's gonna bounce back and forth it's the, so this is actually a well-known and well-studied problem in messaging applications. And uh, typically messaging applications scale the problem by having a single central server and everyone okay. connects to the server and then it's just a one too many 
or like maybe a many to many or many to one, but it's not like one to many to many to many to many to many to many to one. Okay. Would would then the the oh boy, I have so many questions about this. Hey everybody, and I we're we're starting to get get started, and I'm I like I like to do I I I'm, I love to dive into the middle. Mm-hmm. Um. Do you want to? Do you want to? Uh, sometimes we get people rolling in a little bit later, and but that's fine. You and I really just started right in on the topic of the day. Yeah. Um, do you uh, do you mind giving us an introduction uh, to yourself, and then um, my hope is that we'll talk through, you know, what happened with Hackyderm and the migration, but um, mm-hmm. the questions that we're talking about with scaling Mastodon are, are actually, I think, ultimately where I'm going to be most curious to. Yeah, so I am Hazel. Uh, I am fondly known as the um, infrastructure witch of Hackyderm. And I, so I work as a developer in my day job. I do like a lot of building out teams of people, building out infrastructure, figuring out how to solve scaling problems, people problems, tech problems disguised as tech problems, people problems disguised as tech problems, and vice versa. <laughs> and um, I have a lot of fun doing all that. And uh, I have a particular fondness for investigating uh, socio-technical systems and understanding them, breaking down silos and making sure that everything meets in the middle. And in my spare time, not that I have any, but in my spare time, I do quite a bit of swing dancing. Nice. All right. How did you, so how did you get involved with Hackyderm and Mastodon? So that's actually a funny story because it has nothing to do with Hackaderm or Mastodon until it does. Um, <laughs> I had I had moved to Seattle very recently. And like literally half a week after I moved to Seattle, uh, Chris Nova also moved to Seattle. So we moved like pretty much the same weekend. And so she posted on Mastodon and I had joined it about week or two later because Elon Musk had just bought Twitter and I saw the writing on the wall and I was just like, I'm going to leave. And so I had joined Hackyderm and Nova just posted on Hackyderm and saying, I'm going to go bouldering. And I was like, okay. And then she said, <laughs> does anyone want to go to bouldering with me? And I said, oh, I'll do that. So I wake up at five in the morning the next day. Like th- th- it was like 11. I just randomly play on something for six hours from when I went to bed, like typical things, you know. <laughs> and then so I go bouldering with Nova and I'm like, oh, she's super cool. I said, like, not embarrass myself and then proceed to dislocate my shoulder. <laughs> oh, no. Ouch. <laughs> and then um, so we're talking about it and I'm like, you know, slowly starting to kind of go into shock a little bit. And she's like, do you want to go to the ER or do you want to like try and like go downstairs and maybe do something? And I'm like, well, let's go downstairs. And then, so I actually popped my shoulder back in and then kept going. Give me the shivers. All right. (laughs) (laughs) But after that, we had like a, we had a fun working conversation. We kept talking about stuff. And so during that time, when I joined, Mastodon was about a hackaderm, which about 600 people, 600, 700 and it was growing and almost doubling every single day. Wow. Okay. So this was, this was, you hit the time, the post Twitter had, mm-hmm. had 
Chris been running a Mastodon server before the Elon Musk stuff as an experiment, or is it? Yeah. So Nova has a bunch of stream things that she does on Twitch, and uh, she loves to hack on various projects. And one of the projects that she had for a while was her water tower, which is all of her um, Animaniacs named servers. And so she has Alice and Wacko and Yakko and Dot and, you know, all the fun ones. And so she was running Mastodon on there. It was also her, it was her toy project server. So she had weird beta versions of patched Kubernetes on there. We had um, patched kernel versions, just like running around root kits, boot kits, like various just things lying around on the server. There were... um, Well, that sounds really secure. Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. Um, Super great. Super secure. Very excellent. And... um, there was also, I want to say, oh yeah, we were using ZFS, but it wasn't, you know, normal ZFS. It was a patched developer version of ZFS with weird command line plates enabled and no tuning whatsoever. Okay. And um, she's ha- she started Mastodon server, like Hackaderm, in March. And then November, everything kind of shit the bed. Okay. And so I joined around two weeks before everything really like just completely tanked and so she saw the server speed going up and then she saw uh elon hub on twitter and she was like i'm gonna need some more administrators if this goes the way we think it's going to and so she posted on um a discord channel that she has and she was like does anyone you know just dm me if you want to be a, a server person and i was like i would love to Two days later, she's like, you're in. <laughs> that was the whole message. You're in. That's Still hilarious. Up. Yeah. And that's how it started. And, and were, were you able to, since you were both in Seattle, you were physically, you had physical access to her uh, basement garage mm-hmm. uh, infrastructure. Okay. Yeah. There were a couple of times where um, I actually drove over to her house and we spent the evening re- evening reimaging all of her uh, servers. <laughs> Like God. reconfiguring things, wiping hard drives, doing okay. stuff, uh, trying to diagnose various issues. We had quite a few hacking sessions. Yeah. And of course, plenty on Zoom, not Zoom, uh, plenty on Twitch, where they were streamed and recorded in live real time. Nice. With nothing like recreating the pressure of a production outage by streaming <laughs> on the internet for the entire world to see. <laughs> that Did, were, was was the stream able to give you some suggestions? How how active was the the stream? The stream was actually really awesome. They did indeed give us suggestions. There was one time in particular where it was my fault because I do a lot of Node.js stuff, and there was an error when we were compiling Mastodon about like Node SSL options. And ninety percent of the time, you can you can ignore the warning because it's not actually a problem this one time it was a problem and so we kept running into issues and hackaderm was down and finally someone said hey maybe don't ignore that warning and then Makes we sense. tried you know not ignoring the warning and doing a suggestion and then it worked and i was like i need that <laughs> you know like it, it happens but, uh, the stream has been super helpful and very entertaining Nice to have nice to have people looking over your shoulder for something mm-hmm. for for a system. Not very often you get to have a 
a glass house uh, infrastructure well, from that perspective. <laughs> I mean, that was that was one of the things that really stood out to me in how Chris was running the whole infrastructure. We're trying to be really transparent about how yeah. it, how it worked. Um, so the the system was you know a couple servers in the basement, and there's mm-hmm. I posted a link to the to the the post um, mm-hmm. about the the migration. Um, what what would I mean, there's a couple of ways we can talk about how how mm. it transpired. I'm I'm maybe the simplest thing is how do you remember like what the migration was like? Was you know was it was it actually? Let me maybe I'll frame it this way. Was it like troubleshooting the system and then migrating? How did you you know what did so that look was, like? It was one of those things where you basically you had sort of like. Imagine a pan with oil in it, and the oil is just kind of spinning around the pan in various different ways, and you're trying to predict the shape of it. Okay. And then all of a sudden, the oil starts smoking, and you're like, "That's odd. It shouldn't have, you know, it shouldn't have been smoking that early." And then suddenly, the whole house is on fire. <laughs> okay, and, and like, that's that's from the growth, the Macedon growth. So you you, you had an okay. uncontrolled uh, stress. Okay, yeah. So one thing you don't see in the leaving the basement thing was so we had the steel hackathon before. And then, so November 3rd, we had 720 users. November 13th, we had 6,000. Okay. November 25, 25,000. Hmm. And um, so, we, around, you know, 720 users, it went up to 2,000 about, you know, a day or two after that. We're like, oh shit, this is going to get here. We need to start building, you know, the next version of the infrastructure. Because it was running on Nova's basement water tower. And so we were already planning, you know, we're going to move to Hetzner. We're going to, like, do these things. We have unlimited egress there. Which, by the way, the egress is the biggest cost in the entire infrastructure by far. And it is the single reason we're on Hetzner. So if we e- on, egress, egress meaning the data that's being sent out from the Hackyderm server infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's the Federation traffic. Yep. Okay. We serve about one to one and a half terabytes of outbound traffic a day. Okay. And is that, uh, is that, go ahead. Yeah. So like on AWS, that would be about $7,000 a month. Sounds about right. And on uh, Equinix Metal, it will be more than the cost in egress alone than all of the Hetzner infrastructure we have. Yeah. Well, that that makes sense because a- AWS gets you on egress. Mm-hmm. That's all their money. It's the yep. soda fountain of the cloud industry. <laughs> do, do you see that the the federated design is part of that? Or is that, you know, what's, what's driving that type of egress? It's a huge part of it. Um, and in particular, there is a design choice that Activity Pump, and I'm not sure if this is Activity Pump or specifically how Mastodon does it, but Melia is incredibly wasteful. Hmm. Because, so if I have the federated stream and the stream has an image in a post, we download that image, okay. run image magic on the server, convert the image and generate thumbnails. And I do all that stuff for every single post. Yeah. 
on local, on federated, on shared, on every single timeline. Every time a new person joins the timeline, you have to generate their timeline, including all the thumbnails for them. We do that too. And then hopefully they get stored, but maybe they don't. And um, if you transfer a person, you can actually bring down the entire server because there is a thing called Mastodon Streaming. And that is a Node.js service that opens up a bajillion web sockets and pushes notifications to everyone. However, if someone starts getting, you know, 20,000 notifications because you get a new one for every follower you have. Okay. And if you're transferring your account, you're going to get a new one for every follower you've ever had. All at once. And so if you're sitting there watching that, it's just going to like completely throttle everything and bring down the whole server and spike up the CPU and do a whole bunch of absurd things. But the network traffic with media is the huge killer. Okay. So that's where, so for instance, Hackader has about 41,000 people right now. 41, 42, somewhere around there. And so we do about one to one and a half terabytes of egress a day. InfoSec Exchange has always had about 10% more people than we have. 10 to 20, it's a friendly rivalry. Um, but they do six terabytes a day. Oh, that's a lot more traffic. Okay. And do, do you know why they have so much more? They have so much more because um, they're bigger. So would you expect that if you had a 20% growth rate, you would double the amount of, of egress traffic? That's about right. Wow. That's the exponential growth thing doing in. Okay, so, so this is where, where we were talking at the beginning. Go ahead. Uh, I'm just wondering, um, obviously, you guys, th this whole experience has definitely pointed to the uh, pain points of scaling for Mastodon. And I'm wondering uh, what the development team, how how the folks who, who are trusted to do development are attacking these, uh, what what the priorities are, which one to, to, which scaling problem to attack first and things along those lines, if that's even happening. So probably, uh, if I understand what you're saying, Kato, you're asking about the challenges of scaling Mastodon and like how to actually handle that as a community, is that right? Uh, the challenges and how the community is prioritizing and addressing. All right. How they're prioritizing and addressing it. Um, I would say, like, as a cheeky snub answer, they might not actually be doing that. Um, but in a more realistic answer, there are actually, there are legitimate challenges to this because it's not centralized. So people might think of Mastodon as a Twitter alternative. It's really a decentralized microblog that pretends to be like Twitter. But it's federated. It is federated, at least to a certain amount. Yeah. But it's it's a federated service that also happens to be microblogging. And so the federation is the point. Kind of like if you run mm. GPN licensed software, you don't care that it's software, you care that it's GPN licensed. Like the federation, mm. the decentralized, those aspects of it are extremely key to Mastodon. But they also cause all these issues like for media, for example. 
if I have a one megabyte image and I have on my server and I have 10,000 pure instances of Mastodon that all federate with me, Hacker by the way, has more than 10,000. So that's, we have like 15 or 20,000 or so instances to federate with us. Something like that. That's, that's, the ratio is incredible. Okay, sorry. Mm -hmm. yep. That means that every single one of those instances has two choices. They can do what uh, Pleroma does and just directly hotlink to our, to our link. Which means we incur the traffic load of 20,000 Mastodon instances. Or you can do what Mastodon official does, which is you take the thing, you turn it into your own image set, you build it, and then you host it yourself. Which means you incur the traffic overhead of sending that image 20,000 times, and then that's it. And then everyone else hosts it, but the network overhead like quadrupled or more like the network overhead becomes right. exponential rather than linear but it sets the load in theory but also kind of not so instead of sending the image to each user you're sending the user to each federated server so it should taper it should be less but your ratio what five to one means that you're you're only getting you're 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 getting 80 an 80 percent reduction hopefully but there's a lot of transfer mm -hmm. okay yeah and then so it gets trickier because that's if someone uploads an image to our mastodon instance what if someone links to a post and that post has um like a media image in the header somewhere and they get like okay. an image embed Every single Mastodon um, instance that can see that post will go to that website and fetch the media content itself. So you can DDoS yourself by posting a link to your website on Mastodon. Hmm. If you post so, any link uh, to Hackader, okay. for right. example, and then that gets shown up in the local timeline, you're going to get about anywhere from 100 to 1500 um, page hits within two to three minutes. Just from Mastodon hitting. fascinating. Just distributing that link to all of the other servers and them mm -hmm. going and, and building the image. Does that make it prohibitive to build your own Mastodon infrastructure? Because just peering with another server could generate a huge amount of, of traffic. Um, what do you mean by prohibited to have your own Mastodon server? So, so if I set up a new Mastodon server and linked and peered it with Hackyderm, what you're what you're describing to me is that there's a huge amount of traffic and images and things like that that I would then immediately start pulling down mm -hmm. to keep up with Hackyderm. Um, so you you end up with with a peer. I mean, there's. A, seems like there's almost multiple classes of peers in this case there's there's super peers that might do a lot of a lot of the work that you're doing but there might be lighter weight peers that would say yeah i need i want to know who i'm subscribed to but i'm not gonna prefetch or you know do all that work i could just leave it at the at the at the source mm -hmm. server yeah so it gets tricky and at that point you have to actually go and 
figure out what the visibility of a post is. Hmm. Because there's, and I'm actually going to post a link to a Mastodon post in here that contains this image. And there's an image in here called the visibility of a toot. (laughs) So in Mastodon, when the server federates with another server, it means someone on one server follows someone on another server or there's some sort of causal link there. That's how the federation happens. There's no, my server decides to sign up for your server kind of thing. The federation happens organically. You can have a relay, which is different. And a relay is where basically you take the local timeline of Mastodon, of like a Mastodon instance, and then you just shove it straight into another Mastodon instance directly verbatim. Right. And then so they would get that in their... Um, federated timeline. So that's good for people that have like a Mastodon instance that's just them. Oh, okay. So then you're then you're basically it's like an RSS aggregator for just for you at that point. Okay. It is exactly an RSS aggregator. Okay. Right, because it's using it's the same protocol. Exactly, right. <laughs> it's it's okay. implemented almost exactly the same way. Huh. So part of your subscription base here is people who set up a Mastodon server to aggregate the people they follow, so that they they just get it as a time in their in their person in a personalized timeline. Mm-hmm. In that perspective, okay. I hadn't I hadn't thought of Mastodon servers in that for that use case. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, one of the reasons why email is such an effective analogy for explaining how Mastodon works. So, like, do you remember back in the good old days of the internet where you had email chains and people would send um, recipes to each other just, sure. like, over and over, and you would get, you know, forward, 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 email yeah. recipes, you know, <laughs> and um, send yours here, and you had, like, these email rings. And that's how Federation actually works on Mastodon. So, if you go through, like, the timeline chart of what uh, the flow chart of, is a post going to appear in your timeline, and where is it going to appear? Maybe there's a post from someone. Are you following them? Yes, it'll show up in your home timeline. Regardless of what instance either one of you are on. Are they on your instance? It'll show up in your local timeline. Which is everyone on that instance posting. Does someone on your instance follow them? Anyone on your instance, do they follow that person? It'll show up in your federated timeline. Did your instance... And then there's this there's this giant question, which is very subtle. And this <laughs> is where everyone gets confused because it's extremely confusing. Did your instance become aware of the post in another way? For example, by someone boosting or applying it, even if you don't follow them on your instance, or a local search of the URL was done by someone on your instance. Okay. Very specific. Or, a third option, does your instance have a relay that pulls in posts from the instance that that person is on? Yeah. So that would that would be something where, as a hacky derm admin, you choose to pull in content would be the that last. Yeah, so you would have okay. to basically sign up for a relay, and then you would get every post from that relay showing in the federated timeline. 
Fascinating. Without having to have someone on your instance following another person. But but even at the top case, if I'm following somebody from another instance, and I do, I don't I don't usually pay any attention to which instance people are on, which I think is, I guess, the point with the Federation. But mm-hmm. that translates, though, into hacky derm traffic. Sometimes. Okay. <laughs> usually. Usually, usually. It translates into hacky derm traffic. Okay. Um, but if you've ever noticed on Mastodon, occasionally you'll see like a certain amount of boosts or um, likes or comments on a post. But if you go to that post's home instance, you'll actually see way more posts or way more comments and way more boosts and way more whatever. And you only saw maybe like half of the traffic. That's because you weren't, like your instance was not federated with half of the people. So this leads into a usability problem with Mastodon in where maybe someone asks a question. And then your post gets boosted a bunch of times, and now it's on 5,000 different Mastodon instances. Everyone's going to look at the post, read the comments, see only anywhere from 5 to 10% of the comments, and then reply with the same answer. And so you just get hundreds of people replying with the same answer and never seeing the other person seeing the same thing. Oof, okay. This is particularly uh, pervasive oh. for people on single-person instances. Because the only way you can see all of the posts from another person is if you follow every single person who has ever interacted with that post. Oh. And that's what gets you. Okay. Ooh, yeah. That's, that's a large amount of uh, back overhead to maintain. Mm-hmm. Well, it could also be a benefit because you actually might, while you're missing part of the discussion, you're also potentially, you know, just like in Twitter and other things, you you can block content that you don't want to see. This is, it amounts, it's not exactly a block, but it's a, it's a lack of subscription. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you can also literally block things and you can mute things as well. And um, there's actually a feature on Mastodon that I find particularly innovative, which is the ability to mute someone for a time period. Hmm. So you can say, this person's annoying me, but I don't want to mute them forever. Because then, I like it most of the time, they're just being an asshole tonight. Or, you know, you know. You, you Actually, I think like Facebook has, has a feature right? sort of similar to that. You can, you can pause somebody for X amount of time and then mm-hmm. bring them back. So yeah. if, they're, if they're going on a rant, you can pause them for a couple of days. <laughs> or mm-hmm. live tweeting a conference. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's really useful because sometimes um, like a conference will have a hashtag and everyone will like tweet with that hashtag. But if the person like live tweeting the conference doesn't also have their own personal hashtag, you have no way to like stop the flood. That's mm-hmm. hitting your timeline. But with Mastodon, you can actually just do that without having them have to like follow certain hashtag conventions. Oh, interesting. Okay. So like a lot of uh, develop uh, people, if they're live tweeting the conference on Twitter, will have hashtag like, you know, this person experience at, you know, this conference. And they'll have like a weird, unique hashtag that's only for them. 
and then you can just mule it and you don't get the uh, life tweets. Oh, nice. Okay. But they have to know to do that and they have to be good at doing that and they have to always remember to do that. But I'm asking I can just hmm. mute something for, you know, a day or two or for a person, you can mute a hashtag temporarily and you can even follow a hashtag. I, so one of the things that Twitter, good or bad, seems to, because of the way they aggregate, has mm-hmm. trending hashtags that, you know, one, I feel like they're tailored to people. Um, but two, they're they're pretty, you know, they're, it's pretty interesting to watch the, the trend hashtag. How hard is that to do in, in Mastodon? Is that something that can be, is federated also? It is. And uh, so trending hashtags, there is a weird algorithm for determining what's trending and what's not. And I believe it's literally just the amount of people posting it that's visible to the server. So, um, for example, the opalstack.social link that I gave earlier. If you go to there on the website, it says trending now. Hashtag DDoS. Hashtag, you know, songs or movies about sleepwalking, you know, and, and whatever. And it'll say, you know, 12 people in the past two days or 15 people in the past whatever. And so that's people on that server or people that server can see posting and using that hashtag. The other catch is that unlike Twitter, the hashtags have to actually be approved by a Mastodon admin before they show up on the homepage. Oh, interesting. Okay. So like it won't be trending now until an admin allows it to be trending now. So that's essentially so that you can't have like slurs. So that's not automated? It's, uh, it'll show up and all the uh, admin has to do is say like, yes, allow this to be trending, but it's an opt-in rather than an opt-out. Yeah. It's a little tricky, but it's better than having slurs so up because like, you know, 15 people decided to be a mean on the internet, which never happens. But, you know, if 15 people decided <laughs> to be mean on the internet, then you could get a slur trending somewhere. And then you would have to like see it. Someone would have to report it. And then the admin would have to take it down. And instead, it's the other way around. The admin approves it. And it makes it not scalable, but it prevents that sort of engagement hacking, which is a recurring theme of Mastodon's design. Between engagement hacking and making it impossible to scale, they'll always pick the second one. Makes sense. So slower. So so the mm-hmm. scale, scale and speed are are secondary to uh, safety from that perspective. Not secondary to safety. Secondary to not having engagement hacking. Okay. Which is there's a uh, subtle okay. distinction between there. Uh, one is that in order to be you know. In order to enable safety, you have to listen to marginalized communities and actually do certain things. And the line between engagement hacking and making things better for marginalized communities can be very vague. Right. A good example of that is quote tweeting. Massalon has historically said that they will never implement any feature that's like quote tweeting because it can be used for harassment. However, Quote tweeting is also used for call and response style dialogue, which is a primary form of engagement for um, black communities in America and also for artists, for academia, 
and for certain types of communities in which rich information sharing and branching of information is highly valued. But because Mastodon's like, has, uh, the lead designer of Mastodon has just decided as a benevolent dictator that he doesn't want it because his opinion is that it can be used for brigading and for, you know, hate stuff. Okay. He's ignoring all these other communities that have legitimate uses for it. And so the line between is this a safer place for people because of quote tweeting or is it a safer place for people because a very small elect few people that are in privileged positions have decided that it's best for everyone else to not have it. Sometimes so, it's yes, sometimes it's no, but the answer is never like obvious. Right. But I is mean, the, the, go ahead, go ahead, Klaus. Is there something that could be addressed on the client side where a Mastodon client could uh, reconstruct a thread and uh, implement code tweeting? I guess it, it, it would then require the community to actually use that the client. Yeah, so that brings up a good question, which is how do features actually work in Mastodon? Um, which I'm going to answer that one, and then in the same vein, answer the quote tweeting question. So if I wanted to implement quote tweeting in Mastodon, for example, how would I do that? You have the Mastodon web client, which isn't necessary, but de facto, everyone uses it because it's how you interface with things on the web. You don't have to, you can run a different front end, but everyone runs the Mastodon front end. So that front end has to support the content, which is really just metadata inside an activity pub notification. So the activity pub stream is going to have huh. this thing, which is kind of like a JSON blob with some fields and stuff. And you can even have a field called, for example, quote tweet or called like sparkly extra favorites or super follows or like, you can have a whole bunch of extra metadata in there and you can just keep stuffing stuff in there. It doesn't matter, you can stuff it in there and the activity pump protocol is designed to let you sub random stuff in there and not break things. So if the web doesn't support it, it won't display it, but it needs to fall back. If the, um, so you might have like missing stuff. So if you have a fork of Mastodon where you've implemented this feature, you're sending out a modified activity pub post that's different for everyone. So if someone from a different server that doesn't support your modification requests the content, you can send them a different response. So you can send them a fallback response. But if their server supports it, but their front end doesn't, then the front end might break. And if the web client supports it, that doesn't mean the back end supports it. And if both supports it, it doesn't mean that the application supports it because every single third party application has to support every single feature in order for them to all gain adoption. And this is reminding you of like web browser framework adoption for like new features or new JavaScript stuff or new like CSS things or new same process yeah. for the same reasons. Yeah, I was thinking along the lines of like de facto standards and, and like how we end up standardizing with features that are, are not governed by a standards body. Um, it also reminds me to some degree of, like I know this is a much smaller scale of, of issue than 
that, that master the features, but um, uh, mm-hmm. like half a, de- half a decade ago when emojis were becoming really popular, mm-hmm. uh, each platform had their own uh, slightly different look and mm-hmm. um, yeah. were incompatibilities with how they were perceived on each of those platforms. Yeah. Well, uh, there's, for one thing, no standard anywhere. There's the ActivityPub protocol. But Mastodon itself doesn't really have a standard. Because you just use the ActivityPub protocol, which basically has a default set of vocabulary you can use, and then the ability to extend it arbitrarily with any linked data structure via JSON, uh, JSON LD. So you can attach these rich objects to things. You can just start, start like linking a bunch of crap into the post object. And then whoever receives it is just going to receive all the nested JSON and pull all the links to everything and then do whatever it wants to with it. So there's no standard for like, how do boosts work? How, do, how does anything work? How does like replies work? No standard whatsoever. Not a standard, but there is a de facto model based on all the Mastodon servers having similar behavior. Mm-hmm. Right. So you could, you if, if you had a new version, new versions could add metadata that metadata would get passed even by the older servers mm-hmm. from that. It's just, it's just meta, it's just JSON. Yeah. And that, for instance, is how Mastodon version 4 or 4.0.3, somewhere around there, um, implemented the ability to follow hashtags. So in previous versions of Mastodon, you couldn't follow a hashtag, you can search for one. Or you can like click on it and you can like look at it, but you couldn't follow it and get updates in your feeds. Okay. And in Mastodon version 4, you can follow a hashtag. And so they implemented that in the front end, in the client, in the um, back end for Mastodon server. And then all of the mobile applications had to update support for following hashtags. Yeah. So normal. Could, that's, that's a that's that's a distributed that's a distributed mm-hmm. architecture, right? Yep. Huh. That, that, that's giving me nightmares. Like I, like <laughs> my my job in, in particular, like is about ensuring that we can do like version rollouts with without like backwards incompatibilities and mm-hmm. just listening like uh oh this master not it, it's fascinating um mm-hmm. and uh but yeah it, i i am baffled uh at the challenges that you guys are facing and i am um, i I'm, every day i'm pleasantly surprised at, at how well you're you're tackling these challenges yeah it's uh it, it is interesting. Um probably one of the more contentious design points of Mastodon that makes it difficult to scale is not actually activity pub. It's um it's quote responsible handling of media, which gives you um so like copying the media, storing storing it yourself and rehosting it. That is the responsible way to handle it in a distributed system. But it puts a whole bunch of computer load on you. And um, the other consensus design point is its usage of Postgres for everything, Redis for almost everything, and Ruby on Rails. 
And so radish, for example, is used for three different purposes. It's used for um, volatile cash, persistent cash. Hmm. Okay. And for um, as a job cue. So there's two staple things okay. in runners and one volatile thing in runners. And the number one rule of runners is you never use it for anything staple. Because it, it's not designed for that. It's it's not garbage. But it's it's just not designed for that. If you want a message queue, you use something like RapidMQ. We use like a real message queue. You don't implement one in runners. It's really a bad idea. It does not scale. Ruby on Rails uses Redis by default for all of its message queue stuff because you have a lot of libraries that interface very nicely with it, including the venerable Sidekick. Sidekick uh, lets you store, uh, it's a like um, it's a queue thing, like a queue abstraction library for Ruby. The magic of it is that you can stick anything in the queue and then it just kind of works. So you can stick live Ruby objects in the queue. You can stick messages in the queue. You can stick data structures in the queue. You can stick literally whatever you want to. It does not need to be serializable, resumable, savable, or anything. You can start a transaction with activity record, stick it in the queue, pop it out later, and keep going. You can do anything you want to. The world's always oh, Interesting. Okay. But it means switching to a different queue is essentially a non-starter because everything is in the queue. Whatever it is, it's in the queue. You stick a random data structure in there, it's attached to 15 different Ruby objects, which are attached to 15 others, which are, you can't untangle that. Yeah. What's the That's persistence requirement on, on Redis and Mastodon? What about Redis? What's the persistence requirement? Let, let, let's say the Redis instance is completely mm -hmm. wiped and recreated, what would be the side effects that you see? And so the persistent requirement of Redis is you have the sidekick, the cache, and then the Redis URL. The Redis URL is used for listing feeds, um, all of your lists, the home feeds, and the entire streaming API. And so all of those things are staple. So, like, if you have your home feed, that's calculated and computing and then stuck in Redis. And it's an expensive computation. You really don't want to repeat it. It causes a whole bunch of database queries. And um, the streaming API opens up a bunch of stateful, persistent web sockets and then sends things into Redis, uh, reads things from Redis, reads things from the database, writes to Redis, I believe. Like, it, but it does only read from the database, but it does invoke Redis. And so that's where you have like, you know, the red notifications versus the clear notifications. All that state is in Redis. And then the persistent well, data. What's what's the uh, ratio of, um, you know, the database? Are you like how much of it is static and how much is volatile? I would think it would be highly volatile. Um, Redis does have a bunch of volatile stuff like for the cache. And so the cache can get pretty massive. Yeah, I was thinking, so like, I mean, in terms not of like, specifically to Redis, but specifically to Macedon, 
and mastodon's behavior, which should be, I would think that there'd be a lot of a lot of reads and a lot of writes uh, to this database. <laughs> Yeah, there are a lot of reads and a lot of writes. A lot of them are also unnecessary in theory. Um, so, for instance, the streaming API reads from the database every time it opens a connection. So, like every time you open up your phone and go on Mastodon and you click the notifications tab, you open up a new connection to the database. Every time you refresh it, you open up a connection to the database. Oh. Which sounds so, much, um, wasteful because it is. <laughs> is is some of this just going to get optimized out as as the platform matures? Like, is somebody I was I was I was thinking to myself, and then I was watching people joke about it—the re rewrite everything in Rust phenomena. Mm -hmm. Um, is, so it would know, be. So I, I have a bit of a controversial opinion on it. I don't think Ruby on Rails specifically is the bottleneck. Okay. It's the architectural decisions around it. So like people talk about Pleroma because it's written in Elixir. And you can run it on like a tenth of the server hardware that you run Mastodon on. It's super efficient. The vast majority of that efficiency savings is from a slightly better delivery schema and not hosting any of your own media content. Uh, okay. Yeah, the vast the, majority of it is not hosting the media content. So if you host and, your own media content, you've already bought into about 90% of the cost of running a Mastodon server. <laughs> and with Ruby, Ruby on Rails, there's just... Actually, moving off of it is a huge, huge endeavor because there are just so many different bits and pieces and gems and whatnot that uh it's quite the quite the rabbit hole mm -hmm. to try and move from that's a lot of magic in ruby i it's funny because twitter twitter had a similar journey their first implementations were ruby yeah. mm -hmm. in fact twitter had the exact same stack as a mastodon in the old days oh and yeah shockers it was literally a Twitter clone. And so they took the entire stack and just copy-pasted it and used the same stuff. But also, so like GitHub has the same exact stack. And every single startup that started around 2009 to 2014 or so has the same exact stack. Yeah. Except WhatsApp. They used Elixir. <laughs> Everyone else same as that stack. Oh, Facebook used PHP. But I mean, pretty much, if you were a hot trending startup, you used Rails, you loved Postgres, and you ate Sidekick and Redis for lunch. Or rather, you ate you for lunch. But <laughs> it, got your, it got the prototype working, and then and then you could deal with the scaling problems. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of remember that. I mean, that was Ruby was designed as a prototype language, and then it mm -hmm. kind of got out of hand. <laughs> Yeah, it was it was a scripting language, and then someone built Rails, and then all of a sudden everyone was like, "Wow, this is absurdly productive," which it is. <laughs> if you have like this ecosystem that was built around it, you can set up the database in like one minute. After get installed database, yeah, you set up Rails, 
after you install rails, blah blah blah. And then yeah, you just like make it production. I'm a, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I mean, back in the day, it was basically production. Like, if you've ever read any of the old like fun startup stories from the golden age of startups, oh, oh yeah, were like, oh yeah, we ran all of our, you know. Around all of GitHub. I, under, I, I lived that. Oh, yeah. So I didn't have to read about it. <laughs> I you, lived you lived it. it. I meant more for the audience. Like, if they haven't read, if they haven't lived through it. Yeah. Like, you know, the whole, so, the CTO's desk has GitHub servers. And, you know, just don't unplug this power step or it'll take down 10% of the internet. Like, um, so I, I will tell you in my lab at Bolt Brannick and Newman. I had a uh, silicone uh, mechanics server, it was purple, and I had to move the lab, and um, I didn't know what it was, so, um, but, you know, I had to move the lab for, we were, were vacating the building, mm-hmm. so the, the people that were moving came to me and said, well, what should I do, and I said, well, we're going to unplug it and find out. <laughs> And the answer was, it was the one of, it was the uh, domain server, one of the uh, top level DNS domain servers. Oh, that'll do it. That's Let me tell you, resiliency. the knock people showed up about 10 minutes later. <laughs> and so I hit you in the box and said, Okay, it's yours now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope you were high enough on the food chain that you didn't get fired for that. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I was. I was fine. <laughs> was Was there a similar moment in the Hackyderm migration, Hazel, where the where the systems had to get transferred over? Because y'all were were pretty smooth. In in my in migrating because I know uh, uh, mm-hmm. the details you had about migrating the media and offloading the media was was really impressive. So yeah, the media was a piece of work. Let me tell you. Um, so if you've read the post, you know that essentially the main reason everything started dying was because we had two hard drives that were feeling, and because everything was rated together, and also with ZFS. The whole thing, like the performance of the hard drives and the performance of the file system was so bad, it was destroying any throughput of the database and consequently of literally anything ever. It's like you had database queries taking 30 to 40 seconds instead of like 0.01 seconds. Yeah, that's brutal. If you're executing hundreds of database queries like a minute or even a second, you can't have that pile up. And um, so I think one thing like that we didn't really share a whole lot in the um, leaving the basement was version two was supposed to be NetOS. Mm-hmm. Like when we moved to um, Hetzner, the original plan was I was building out some NetOS infrastructure. We were going to deploy NetOS everywhere on Hetzner, seamlessly migrate everything over, and then about a week or two after having a bunch of stuff over, migrate the database in one of our swoop. That plan would have worked how we had, I want to say, about two or three more weeks. Oh, okay. We were about two or three weeks away from that working. And then, so, we're, we're in Discord. And uh, Nova and I are chatting along with a couple of other people on the team. And Nova's like, all right, everything's just failing. We're starting to have to, like, 
volunteer on-call shifts, like keep the queues running. Right. And so we were working almost around the clock on the queues, and then she said, hey, we need to do this in 12 hours. We Load's going up, service going down. We've got, I want to say, we don't have a week anymore. We've got 12 hours, maybe six. Can you get all this stuff ready in like, you know, six hours? And I said, no. I thought I could maybe do it. I thought I could maybe do it, but it's one of those things where you're like, it's not about can you achieve the thing you want to do? It's can you keep the system healthy and stable? Can you do what the system needs right now and put any, you know, personal ambitions aside? And so we had installed it so much on every single server in Hetzner. And I was super stoked about it. And I made the decision with Nova. She asked permission. She was very nice. She asked permission from me to like do that because it was kind of my VB. And I said, let's nuke them all. Let's wipe them. Let's install Arch on everything. Hmm. Because her servers were Arch on it. So, so we could copy all the bootstrap scripts over. And so we just essentially virtually cloned every single server she had in her basement. Moved everything over. And just started taking all the compute as fast as possible, all the stateless stuff, over. The catch was we ran into NFS issues, which started compounding the data issues. And um, so originally we had NFS because that's one of the recommendations in Mastodon for storing media. Uh, okay. But NFS does not work. It works if everything is hardwired together through physical Ethernet cables. In any other circumstance, it's not reliable. So you should never oh, use yeah, NFS. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. We were it's doing low, low latency protocol. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yep. We were yeah. doing. Yeah. Yeah. So are you are you ready for this? We were doing on the same server that has the database, running on ZFS as the file system, also had NFS on it. Transatlantic. Oh, no. <laughs> oh my God. As, With as two a... failing hard drives on the database server. Don't, two don't failing hard drives. <laughs> oh my god! All right, that would be NFS hard. was never designed to be to do that. Never, ever, ever, ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we actually broke NFS back in the mid late nineties for that sort of problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So one of the problems was that it worked. It should have fallen over instantly, but it actually worked. And basically, we were doing a lower level of IOPS. Because of like less CPU pressure on the water tower. So it looked about neutral. But the second we got more people, we uh, basically we made a separate exponential curve in terms of the stability in the system. So it was like meta stable and like a low user count. And then a double user count, we went from like, oh, maybe it's, you know, this curve, like a gentle curve of acceleration. We basically created for ourselves a cliff of doom. With a but I like that device. cliff of doom. Yep. Yeah. And then, so not only did we have this cliff of doom, we made this cliff of doom, and then we mad matched, ran over it, screaming, you know, flames throwing everywhere, just whoop, didn't even notice. And then, so we had to wipe the servers, move things over, and then we were trying to figure out if we had to move the database over first or the file system. And we decided it was the file system because okay. NFS was just locking for 30 seconds to a minute and yeah. that would lock the entire file system, including Postgres, 
which yeah. are then lock NFS, which are then lock Postgres, which are then yeah, yeah. Well, and, so you were relieving relieving stress off the hard off, off the drive system, so the database could perform. Well, NFS is not designed to be a file system with databases. Yeah, like, the discussion. <laughs> mm-hmm. Probably the biggest problem with NFS, because I absolutely agree with you. The biggest problem no one really talks about is that posit file system standard. It's really like a fuzzy ideal that all of modern hardware just like pretends is there, but really lies and gets around it. And um, NFS pretends that the modern like posit file system thing actually works. And treats it as an abstraction mm-hmm. and actually utilizes it. Mm-hmm. But the posit file system thing has things like atomic things are atomic. You know, swaps are swaps. Like, um, you can you have these atomic building blocks of a file system that you can use to layer on top of things. Yeah. And NFS violates every single one of them while pretending it doesn't violate any of them. <laughs> well, and NFS is pretty old. It is. <laughs> I mean, what is it? It's at least 20, 25 years old at this point. At I mean, least. it's got to be. And like Linux came out in 91, which means like NFS came out five years after Linux kind of thing. Yeah. So, so it's closer to 30 years old, which means it's designed for literally a different generation of hardware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're, we're talking mainframes with SAS like connections. We're talking like I don't even think Ethernet cables are a thing, but like yeah. network wired um, together hardware. We, we well, were using NFS in '95. Okay. So yeah, yeah. I I was in the I used a lot of NFS. Yeah, in the in the '90s. Yeah, yeah. for sure. But I mean, it, but it was, it's also not a network. It's not really designed to be used on networks. So there was a whole bunch of, I remember um, this was back in the early 2000s. There was a bunch of work around um, the SAN networks. And I don't know if you remember um, Left Hand. And that was just one of several companies that came out with these file systems that were designed to work on the network. And so you Mm -hmm. had a SAN and you had the, and then you had a network one that ran over you know, the the shared network with yeah. the other traffic. It was just a disaster. Yeah. SAN versus NAS. And yeah, SAN versus I, NAS. I hate, to, that, yeah. I hate to say it, but I know the guy who's a manager of the NFS group at Sun, and he's a USC grad that just happened to do software. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and he was still learning even how to be a manager at the time he took over NFS. That's how that we we were talking to something when when it works, just like our Redis queuing system. It, yep. It's incredibly persistent and hard to migrate mm-hmm. from. Uh, cool. Hey, IPv4 is still alive and well, and its mm-hmm. death has been forecast for literally 40 years. <laughs> mm-hmm. Got to be careful it's, when you design protocols. Yeah. yeah. IPv, IPv4 gives me zero hope that we're going to solve the uh, Unix 2038 bug. Yeah. It's like we, we solved the 2001 bug because people still cared about each other back then. But the fact that we haven't deprecated IPv4, you know, for real and just like murdered it dead means that like I have no hope we will ever solve 2038. Like, I... I, I, I hope it I hope it's a cleanup problem. V V six, yeah. It's a, it's 
it's just like you described before. It's you've got to have everything. It, there's a lot of inertia in the system and you've got to drain mm-hmm. out the old code before you can yeah. you can change the protocol. That's hard. Yeah, but so the U.S. government forced V6 and it's still around as V4 still around. Right. Yeah. The US government mandated that all its systems had to be in V6. But you know what? Still V4. <laughs> I think so. My hypothesis on that is that it's actually one of those things where you can mandate things all you want to. And then if the industry doesn't like start the process, it's never going to happen. So, like, I'm reminded of IE6 and then Explorer dying. Uh, the death of IE6 can be attributed to essentially YouTube, where there's, like, a rogue team of developers who are just mm-hmm. like, we're so pissed off at writing random JavaScript hats and CSS hats for IE6. Let's make a little banner that says, IE6 deprecated, please switch to this other browser. <laughs> <laughs> and then yeah. you can see in worldwide uses, uh, statistics of IE6 just instantly dropping the second that banner went out. And then every other website was like, oh, Google did this. We can do this. Google did this. We can do this. And then yeah. within like two years, ISIS was no longer a thing. Yeah. If Google said no IPv4 connecting to us, uh, mm-hmm. IPv4 would, would die fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. No. I no. This all right. So I'm, we we are we are over time, and I, this is this is actually a favorite DevOps lunch topic. So I'm going to hold off, and we can have a, a dedicated topic on this. Hazel, thank I you so love much to talk about V4 and V6. Yeah, yeah, this was great, Hazel. This was fantastic. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. I hope I got to talk about Masson enough for you. Definitely. I, 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 you're invited to come back anytime you want. We, we, ha- we love topics like this, obviously. Um, and, you know, riffing on, on scaling stuff up and down is, is oh, yeah. always yeah. fun. So I, your, your hard one experience was really valuable. So thank you for sharing it. And then my comment was, I've heard this story before. <laughs> I have lived this story before. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, I think everyone on this uh, this call has lived something like this, although I will say the order of scale that you're dealing with is a hell of a lot bigger than than probably any of us had uh, had to deal with before. Yeah. yeah. Which makes <laughs> it so fascinating. Yeah. There are very few times in a career when you get to see a, a true exponential curve in, in, mm-hmm. in real life and, and yeah. troubleshoot it in the open. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It's funny how much people fear monger about it. And then when the actual exponential curve hits, it doesn't matter how prepared you are. You're still just going to go, oh, shit. And yeah. then just fall on your face. And so <laughs> you do after that, the counts. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Definitely. Cool. You're never yeah, you. prepared for it. You can't. Uh, you can't. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you you can be you can be less prepared. You can't be prepared, but you can be less prepared. I think. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You can't be prepared, but you can be unprepared. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> thank you thank, so much. Thank you all. Great. Yeah. Yep. Bye <laughs> bye. Wow. What a robust and interesting conversation. Hazel had so much to add, not just about Hackyderm specifically, but about Mastodon and the architecture in general. Of course, the links are available in the show notes so that you can read the Leaving the Basement podcast and also 
the reference that Hazel gave us about when a toot is propagated and what the challenges are with that. Uh, this is exactly the type of content that we love to have with the Cloud 2030 DevOps Lunch and Learn. Uh, if you want to share your own experience, ask questions, bring somebody in, or just help figure out how to build great infrastructure, join us at the 23rd.cloud. You can see our schedule, get links to the Zoom, and participate. Looking forward to talking with you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Cloud 2030 podcast. It is sponsored by RackN, where we are really working to build a community of people who are using and thinking about infrastructure differently, because that's what RackN does. We write software that helps put uh, operators back in control of distributed infrastructure, really thinking about how things should be run and building software that makes that possible. If this is interesting to you, uh, please try out the software. We would love to get your opinion and, and, and hear how you think this could transform infrastructure more broadly. Or just keep enjoying the podcast and coming to the uh, discussions and you know laying out your thoughts and how you see the future unfolding. It's all part of building a better infrastructure operations community. Thank you.